So this is a very brief outline. I'll start with um, explaining what are the methods that we use, how the whole field works with one slide, so it's not going to be um, too much uh, information, I hope, uh, but just as an introduction so that if I further use some words or refer to something that we're all on the same page. Uh, then I will talk about how HIV was introduced in the country and how different subtypes were introduced and how they then um, evolved into completely different um, epidemics and have uh, very different epidemiological histories. Uh, I will then talk about uh, how the epidemic in the region, in Ukraine and in Russia, boomed in 1990s and what were the social, economical and political factors that enabled them um, the, this epidemic to spread so rapidly within such a short period of time. And then I will conclude on um, the topic that we gathered here today for, which is uh, how uh, the war is shaping the epidemic now and what are the uh, recent changes. Yeah, we'll start with the overview of um, phylogenetics. So you probably have seen the phylogenetic trees before. Uh, they look like um, this little trees on figures A through D. And what they um, basically do, they help us to uh, show how different uh, species or different lineages or same species are um, related to each other. It's basically, uh, you can think about them as genealogy trees that we all drew when we were in kindergarten and this is the same but for pretty much anything and I will talk specifically about HIV. Uh, so phylogenetics is this uh, field that evolved recently and formed a pretty much separate discipline uh, within uh, phylogenetics and phylogenetics um, looks at how different epidemiological or evolutionary factors shape this um, phylogenies that we observe. And uh, phylogenetics rely on several concepts. For example, um, we work with measurably evolving populations, which means that uh, we need um, enough, um, we need to be able to sample um, from the same population um, several times in time and enough evolutionary difference between the samples need to have been accumulated for us to be able to uh, draw any conclusions. Uh, then we work with molecular clock techniques. So molecular clock assumes that uh, DNA and protein sequences evolve in a constant uh, rate and um, we also um, work with coalescence theory. There are other uh, models that we use, but coalescence theory is um, sort of the ground um, basis, um, and a lot of different methods were built on it. So if you look at the figure E, for example, it tries to summarize how coalescence work. So coalescence theory says that the time uh, that it takes to find a common ancestor between any two lineages is proportional to the size of the population. So once 
many years, not that many, probably five years ago, uh, someone explained it to me in a way that if you go to a small village and you randomly find two people and what is, how long back in time do you need to go to find their common ancestor that they shared a grandfather or great-grandfather and it's probably not that long ago and if you go to a huge city and take randomly two people and try to find a common ancestor it's going to take a really long time which means that the time that it takes to find this common ancestor is proportional to the size of the epidemic uh, of the population that you sample from and then uh, we talk about phylogeography that again is um, a sub field from phylogenomics uh, so if we know where our samples were sampled from for example geographically but even though the field is called phylogeography the trait that we look at doesn't necessarily have to be a geographical region. It can be, for example, a risk group. Uh, we often talk about um, how, different, how the virus moves between different risk groups. So we can estimate the viral flow between different regions or different uh, risk groups. So this is about it with the background theory and I'll start talking about Ukraine. So Ukraine is located in a Eastern Europe as you might know. Uh, it has about 45 million people. Uh, the population is shrinking because I remember this ad from like 15 years ago that said there are 52 million of us. Uh, well not anymore. Uh, and the HIV infected population is about a quarter of the million. Uh, the antiretroviral treatment, this is the treatment that uh, people who are infected with HIV can take and uh, can control their virus and become uninfectious and live pretty much normal life, um, is quite low. So the global uh, goal is to reach so-called 1990 by 2020, which means that 90% of, of those who are infected should be diagnosed, 90% of those should be in treatment and 90% of those should have their viral load suppressed. Um, we're lagging behind because this is the second this is the second 90 and we're at 36 and uh, the epidemic has been dominated by this one HIV subtype subtype A and um, yeah which accounted for about 93% uh, of all of the cases. Uh, so we first heard, uh, started talking about HIV in Ukraine in the late 90s. There were multiple pu uh, publications and um, they were reporting that different subtypes, subtype A, subtype B, um, AB recombinant were found uh, in the country and there were some um, evolutionary analysis conducted that showed that actually the southern Ukraine were, was so-called birthplace of the epidemic and this is where the whole epidemic in Ukraine, in Russia and the whole post-Soviet world started. So the um, other research have done um, this analysis before and tried to um, estimate where did the virus come from into Ukraine and they did this analysis with the uh, subtype A uh, which, as I said, is the most prevalent subtype in the country. And uh, what they saw is that, so all of the sequences, they come from Ukraine and Russian um, 
from this um, post-USSR epidemic, and they found that the closest relative to them is the one in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. And then they also got the timing of this uh, introduction event. So they estimated the time to the most recent common ancestor between the Ukrainian sequences and sequences from um, uh, DRC, and they show that this introduction happened in late 60s, um, early 70s. So quite a long time ago. Then I have recently well, we have recently done um, analysis with the subtype B. Subtype B have been largely neglected because it only accounted for less than 10% in the country, so people weren't really curious about it. Um, so we looked at two different um, clades of, uh, that are circulating in the country in two distinct populations, so we were looking at them separately. And we again estimated the time to most recent common ancestor uh, so these curves are the um, effective population size, basically the size of the um, the estimates of the size of the effective population in the country, and uh, we show that the time to most recent common ancestor is also in the late 60s or early 70s. So uh, it is not the actual uh, population size; it is a product of the uh, population size and the generation time. Uh, so. Basically, um, we assume that the generation time is constant throughout the epidemic, so we assume that this curve has the same shape as the uh, actual population size curve. Um, so, as you can see, the um, introduction of these two subtypes into the country was around the same time. However, as I already mentioned, they had very different epidemiological histories. One literally seeded this huge epidemic, and the other just didn't, and remained very, you know, geographically limited. Even now, this is uh, nowadays, uh, subtype A is found pretty much in any region in Ukraine, and subtype B, well, you can't really see the colors that well, but uh, it, there are many places that it's where it's not uh, circulating, or there were only sporadic cases where it was uh, found. So, what can account for? such a stark difference. We are pretty sure that it's not because subtype A is more fit than subtype B, because we know that subtype B can establish a huge epidemic. In fact, pretty much all of the Western world countries are dominated by subtype B, including the Europe, the US, Australia. So we know that it is, if not more fit, then definitely not less fit than subtype A. So then we thought, uh, people expressed uh, this opinion previously in the literature that maybe, you know, subtype A was just introduced much earlier than subtype B. There is a so-called first-comer advantage, um, or the um, theory that uh, says that through the modeling, uh, researchers were able to show that if um, by the time that the second um, strain is introduced into the country, if the first strain is already established, then the second strain would need to be 25% more fit to be able to um, find a niche and overcome and become more prevalent than the first strain. But as I just showed you, uh, the estimates show that both subtypes were introduced around the same time, so it is, again, highly unlikely that um, this accounts for this stark difference. 
So we think and um, that uh, what accounts for this is the cultural differences. So if you see, if you can see, we um, um, here, Odessa and Mykolaiv are the two regions where these subtypes were introduced first. So Odessa is where subtype A was introduced, and Mykolaiv is where subtype B was introduced. I'm from Odessa, by the way. Just saying, uh, and. Um, these two cities, they're both port cities, they're both on the seaside, so on the first glance they're quite similar. However, um, Odessa, apart from being a port city, is also a major tourist destination, mostly for um, people from Ukraine and other USSR countries. And it's also a party place. Um, I'm not recommended this place in particular, but uh, I'm just saying that it is a place where people come, um, have fun and go. So it is a very, you know, dynamic place. At the same time, Nikolaev, it has a large port, but for a very long time it was um, a closed, let's say, place. So it was, um, there was a military base there during the Soviet times and the access to the city was restricted and then even when it was open it still became quite isolated let's say so when one of the subtypes was introduced here and then it allowed it to spread into many different locations and the other was introduced here and remained quite um, isolated and restricted to Mykolaiv and the capital of Kiev and very few other uh, locations so we talked about how the virus was introduced in the country, but again, uh, it happened early 60s and uh, late 60s, early 70s, and we know that the epidemic didn't actually happen until the mid 90s. So the virus was circulating in the country, but it wasn't causing a major, you know, public health emergency uh, until pretty much the early 90s, so 20 years after. So what happened is all of you know that in the late 80s, perestroika started and uh, major um, changes in political life that were followed by changes in economical uh, life happened and um, people just became poorer and poorer and there was a lot of uncertainty uh, in what's going to happen next, the money were devaluating and the people turned to drugs. So the population of people who inject drugs, which I will call, try to call PUID just because it's much shorter, um, started to grow and started to expand and at the same time uh, the police um, service started to degrade and there was a lot of corruption there so there is very little control over um, this rising um, you know drug market and so people started to um, produce drugs and uh, most of the drug use was from home produced opioids um, and this is when the um, HIV entered this um, group and started its massive uh, you know spread so right now um, if you look at this graph for example uh, in early 90s there were under 40 
cases of HIV per year in Ukraine, for example. And then when we come to 1995, this number grew almost 100 times because there were 4,000 people registered compared to 40 the previous year. And similar to Russia, like there were quite limited number of infections and most of them were attributed to uh, sexual transmissions, to um, transmissions from uh, female sex workers, and um, there were almost no cases in uh, people who inject drugs. And then the next year, 4,000 people get infected and almost all of them are, uh, all almost all of those infections are in um, this one population. The epidemic grew uncontrollably. Right now, uh, just Russia uh, alone has one million infected people. So uh, together as Ukraine, it's about 1.1 and a quarter. And the um, adult prevalence is borderline 1%, which is when we talk about a generalized epidemic, when epidemic is not concentrated in certain risk groups anymore. And as you can see, the ratio of infections that are attributed to people who inject drugs uh, versus those that are attributed to sexual transmissions changed a lot over the years. So if at first the infections were overwhelmingly, and at first, I'm not even talking about the first years of the epidemic, it's like 15 years ago, uh, the infections were overwhelmingly um, in the population of people who inject drugs. In Ukraine right now, we observe many more infections in um, through sexual transmissions, mainly through um, heterosexual transmission. But then again, there is very little report of MSM contact altogether, so it's hard to tell if it's heterosexual or not, but it is sexual uh, transmission. So what we did a few years ago, we collected all of the publicly available um, genetic sequences from two different um, genomic regions from HIV, um, envelope and pole, and we tried to reconstruct the um, effective population size uh, of these two, um, of um, HIV-1 subtype A, but based on the uh, data from two Gen different genomic regions. So we had uh, this region, this little map, not up to size, um, how um, much data we had from different regions in Russia and Ukraine. And we also looked at the prevalence data, which is the black curve here. And we see that these three curves, they correlate um, very well. And um, they all show this dramatic increase in the um, population size after 1995. So what we did next, we um, used uh, both of these curves and estimated the important epidemiological parameters that helped us to describe how fast the virus spread in that population in that time. So specifically, we looked at two um, epidemiological parameters, which is the reproductive uh, number, which, I don't know, just in case, if you're unfamiliar with, this is the number of secondary infections 
average number of secondary infections attributed to one infected individual. So if I transmit um, the virus to two people and then one of them doesn't transmit, the other one transmits to one person, so on average there were three transmitters and three infected people, so the reproductive number is one on average. So um, we talk about epidemic growth if the reproductive number is higher than one, which means that uh, the virus, there people transmit to more um, than one person on average, and uh, the epidemic is in decline if it's below one. So I, I'm, I'm gonna talk further how uh, this very high um, reproductive number, it was actually um, caused by behavioral uh, practices. Yeah, so we did certain assumptions in terms of uh, what is the duration, average duration of uh, infectivity, so how long an average a person stays infected and can transmit virus further. And um, we assume that it is around 10 years, which is how long on average an untreated HIV-infected person leave. And if this was the case, then the average basic reproductive number is was around seven, which is extremely high for HIV. So the average numbers vary a lot between the different pathogens, but for HIV, um, usual estimates in heterosexual populations, even when the epidemic is growing, are around two or below two. So um, this was a very um, high number. And then we also looked at the generation time. So the generation time is the uh, time that it takes on average for one person to transmit to another person. Uh, and if we assume that the proportion of transmitters was around 70%, and we make this assumption because this was a heavily um, drug injection driven epidemic, and the, we, took, we looked at the proportion of uh, transmissions attributed to um, injections, which was 70, and we assume that all of the other transmissions that are unlikely to contribute much compared to the uh, transmissions within the uh, population of people who inject drugs. And uh, we observed a very low generation time, just 25 days, which for HIV it's pretty much nothing. It leaves people no time to diagnose a person, to put them in care, and to reduce their viral load. So uh, even if there was prevention at the time, if this was the case, if the virus spread so quickly, it would have been very difficult to slow it down. This is the set of mathematical equations that we used to relate those two epidemiological curves, the effective population size estimated, estimated from the genetic sequences um, and the uh, actual prevalence estimates, which, if you're interested, we can go through later, but I hope we don't. Um, so what are the possible, again, explanations? So we know the um, quantitatively how we, we characterize how fast the virus spreads. So what does it tell us in terms of how this happened, you know, practically? And uh, there were two different theories. So many people believe that it's just because there was absolutely no prevention and people um, 
um, took, let's say, very risky injection practices, like they reused needles, they shared needles, they shared um, cooking equipment, and um, so pretty much everyone transmitted to everyone. So there was a high number of transmitters and a short generation time. There was, however, uh, there were anecdotic, let's say, reports that back in the time, uh, blood was sometimes used as a buffer during home uh, drug production. Uh, we don't know at which stage it was added, but uh, because again, these reports there are mostly not in the scientific literature, but they were um, reports, as I said, like anecdotal reports from uh, people who worked with this population at the time or in um, newspapers. And um, we decided to consider this theory as well. But in terms of, in mathematical terms, this would translate in a very low number of transmitters. So basically only people who cook drugs will contribute their own blood and will um, account for the transmissions, which is not more than 10% of the population. And a short generation time, because one person can't physically produce enough blood to uh, support drug supplies for large um, numbers of people. And we think that, uh, the, um, yeah, this is a picture that I found on the internet, but it looks pretty much how the um, actual drug use venues in Ukraine look, where people produce uh, drugs at home. Um, it's just the pods that are used uh, used to be used for cocaine and then not anymore and then um, things that you can buy in pharmacies um, and it takes less than a day to make a lot of drugs. Um, but we think that the use of blood as a buffer is an implausible uh, explanation for, the, um, for this spread because um, According to our estimates, if the proportion of transmitters was around 70% and the generation time was around 25 days, then, um, it, so if the proportion of transmitters was low, like 10%, then the generation time would be very high. And we think that it is, as I said, biologically implausible. And the, according to our estimates, a low uh, generation time and a low proportion of transmitters <coughs> is not uh, what could have happened. So briefly we talked about what was happening in Russia and Ukraine and so what's happening there now. If you look at the, uh, this is the uh, number of new HIV cases, the annual number in Ukraine and you see that at some point after 2010 it kind of stabilized. So here there is a very optimistic drop but unfortunately the data are not full because we don't have full picture for uh, Crimea, Donetsk and Lugansk, the uh, places where we don't have full surveillance at the moment in Crimea. We don't have, da we don't have data from Crimea at all uh, right now. Uh, but still, even before that happened, the epidemic was kind of stabilizing. 
However, if you look at the cases from Russia, it is a very different uh, picture. Yes, the epidemic, um, so here is when all of the uh, people who were infected, or a lot of them got diagnosed, so we got a lot of new cases, then it seemed to be a drop, and then it's steadily growing for the last 15 years, and it doesn't show signs of stabilization. So for the epidemic that started very, very evenly from the same place, what caused like differences in how the uh, these two epidemics are progressing. Again, uh, we think that the major difference was the approach in HIV prevention for people who inject drugs. So there is uh, such a so-called harm reduction. I don't know if uh, you guys heard about it, but this is basically a set of interventions that aim to reduce harm from drugs and drug use instead of enforce quitting drugs, let's say. So it enables people to use drugs safely if they can't quit it. Uh, so one of the, um, two of the most prominent approaches are the opiate substitution treatment. This is where people don't use drugs at home. They come to medical facilities and drugs are administered by doctors and not in an injection form, but they provide liquid drugs, which is much safer in terms of infectious diseases spread. And in Ukraine, this program has been operating since 2005. It started from 100 people, uh, and now it's about 10,000 people. And it's um, starting from last year, it's 80% supported by the government. So, because before it was supported uh, through um, NGOs uh, from the international donors. In Russia, this is until now illegal, and pretty much any big HIV AIDS conference, uh, there will be um, a talk or a panel where um, people try to address this uh, situation because this is a widespread practice pretty much in the whole uh, Western world, but Russia disagrees and says that you know the evidence-based approach is not good enough, and uh, so they don't um, adopt it. And similarly, with syringe exchange program, when people can bring their used syringes and get uh, clean syringes so that they don't have to reuse their own or someone else's syringe if they need to do an injection. In Ukraine, we have a pretty high coverage of that, and in Russia, they're not supported. There are, so they're not illegal, and there are some sporadic programs, again, uh, through NGOs, they provide clean syringes, but um, it's not very well supported. It's not supported by the government. And of course, both countries are far, far behind in terms of uh, LGBT plus rights. And in Ukraine, we didn't have at all any HIV in MSM for a very long time. Um, well, according to the official statement by the Ministry of Health. And um, in Russia, things got even Whereas five years ago with the adoption of the what is called anti-gay law, but which is basically a law that forbids any mention of untraditional sexual relationships um, in adolescence, which basically makes the operation of any NGO that works with this risk group very um, challenging. Um, so, yeah, this is what. Um, here we pretty much stop talking about Russia and we go back to um, Ukraine. And 
even though this was in 2012, for the first time we saw the reduction of new cases in the country, uh, we still saw the uh, slight uphill trend and even in the um, in this last bit, in the last few years, uh, even though we don't have the full picture, we still see an upside um, trend in um, the number of new cases. So what happened was, uh, but um, what happened was that in 2013, Maidan movement started in Kiev. It started as a small protest um, organized by students, and they were protesting against the president at the time, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, backing out of the uh, process of um, signing up the agreement with uh, European Union, which was another step towards um, at some point joining the EU and the students protested and the government reacted very violently. They were basically locked up, um, surrounded and locked up in this uh, little place and beaten up. And this is what caused massive protest uh, in the country. First, it was um, the country split between two, um, two different opinions. One, that we should follow the Euro integration route and um, we should oppose uh, to you know any violent behavior, especially towards um, you know young people. There were some underage people in that group, and then another um, group of citizens that thought that we need order, protests are not good, and we should stick with Russia, and we should stick with the economic union with Russia. And so this uh, protest happened every Sunday for several months. So people would come to Kiev every Sunday from like many different regions of the world. And at some point it peaked and um, it was absolutely packed. There were estimates, the estimates vary, but there were hundreds of thousands of people there. And then things did escalate even further. Uh, people started building barricades in the city center and the government didn't allow that and uh, announced that this is against the law and they would take them down. And then on Monday in February 2014, uh, the conflict escalated and about 100 protesters were killed um, in fire. Um, and the next day the president fled the country and let's say gave up. He understood that he this was crossing the line, and um, we thought that this is going to be some sort of a resolution. But within a few weeks, uh, Crimea is being annexed by Russia. There is a notion that nationalists came into power in the capital, and we need to protect people uh, of Russian origin, which a lot of them, about half of them. Uh, leave um, half of the people living in Crimea are of Russian origin, and pretty much most of them were uh, Russian speakers. So Russia takes over Crimea, and the next month it starts, or um, let's say, rebellion uh, starts in the eastern Ukraine. So this split the two regions, Donetsk and Lugansk, in the east of the country into two. So there are regions. Uh, this changes. This map is from a couple of years ago. This, there are tiny changes back and forth, but uh, pretty much 
um, some of the territories are controlled by the rebels and some of them are control controlled by the Ukrainian government and uh, the conflict is still going on and there are um, well it's not casualties people are um, dying there um, un until now but of course the conflict is not uh, getting as much attention anymore because you know it's uh, yesterday's news so uh, after this happened um, naturally negative uh, public health consequences followed so first of all when Russia next Crimea as I just mentioned opioid substitution treatment is banned in Russia so all of the programs that existed in Crimea were immediately closed this was followed by an outbreak of around 100 deaths attributed to overdoses when people who didn't have access to the opioid substitution treatment went back to their old habits and overdosed um, because that was much more than they could handle compared to years in the treatment programs. Uh, some of them fled the, uh, Crimea and moved to um, the continental part of Ukraine. And um, similarly, in the eastern part of the country, there were a lot of, um, in the rebel-controlled territories, first there were shortages in antiretroviral treatment, so people interrupted therapy, which is an awful thing to do because during that time, Drug, resistant, uh, dr drug resistance occurs and so even if people get access, back access to treatment uh, those same drugs might not work for them and they, they need to uh, change and try different lines of drugs which are more expensive and then again can be in short supply and um, um, yeah this causes all sorts of problems both for the person who is in treatment and for people that they interact with because it allows the virus to be transmitted further because the viral load is getting uh, a rebound and gets high again. Yeah, and of course there was massive um, human migration. So uh, people tend to think that uh, most of the internally displaced people move like far away, but in fact uh, the regions that took most of their internal refugees are let's say the same region so people just move away from the conflict line and to their relatives or to places that they know within the same region of course they also moved like to the a lot of them moved to the capital and to the south of the country and to other big cities across the country but a lot of them um, let's say stayed in the east so what we did, we uh, looked at the um, subtype A sequences that were available from this drug resistance database. So basically when patients come um, into treatment and if they fail treatment, then they are um, prescribed a test to um, check for drug resistance. And then based on the specific mutations that they have, the new treat line of treatment is prescribed. So we used this data and we had them pretty much from all of the uh, regions of Ukraine. And conveniently we had data two years before and two years after the start of the conflict. 
so we then aligned this data, these sequences, to all of the publicly available uh, subtype A um, sequences from Eastern Europe and some other reference sequences. Um, so here some of the branches are colluded, so they don't represent the actual number of sequences that we used, just because otherwise the figure would not fit anywhere. Um, and um, as we can see, so these are the reference sequences from somewhere else, and these are the former Soviet Union um, sequences, and they form the, as was shown before, the um, separate clay, the separate um, cluster within the global subtype A epidemic. And then our sequences uh, formed a separate, they were much newer uh, than other uh, sequences in the analysis, and they were um, formed a separate cluster within this global epidemic. Again, this is um, the tree that we built. So when conducting this sort of analysis, it is important to test if there is enough molecular clock signal. So basically, if, um, as I said, there was enough evolutionary change accumulated between different sampling time points. And um, we estimated that and we used the uh, a little bit of reference sequences to calibrate our molecular clock to make sure that we have a stronger um, signal and that, that our slope, the estimate of the molecular clock, is consistent with uh, what has been previously published. And um, what we did, we did a discrete phylogeography analysis. And um, so because we had different number of sequences per location, we repeated the analysis multiple times. So we knew that we have more sequences from the east of the country because the epidemic um, was very severe there and the, these regions are large. So uh, we had more data from there. So when we saw our the initial figure, we weren't sure if that's attributed uh, to the fact that we just have more data from those regions or if that's the actual pattern that we see. So we repeated the analysis multiple times, making sure that we have approximately the same number of sequences from all of the locations. And then we did what is called epoch analysis. So basically we fit our data, um, to, with, uh, we fit two models into our data. One of them that assumed the same viral flow and no change, the same um, migration, viral migrations between the regions throughout the whole observed period between 2012 and 2015. And the other one assumed that there was a change. So there was, um, there were two different epochs before 2014 and after 2014 and the viral flow changed at this certain point. And we checked which model fits our data best. Uh, but yeah, and then we uh, when we estimated this viral flow from and to certain regions, we also checked if there were any specific um, factors uh, that were associated with an increased or a lower uh, viral flow. So very briefly how phylogeography works. So the very, very simple method, the parsimony uh, method, assumes, so we, if we have sequences from uh, multiple uh, different patients and we know where these patients were diagnosed or where they are based. And if we don't see the rest of the tree and we just look at this 
uh, clade and two sequences cluster together, one of them from Odessa, one of them from Crimea. We don't know where their common ancestor was. It's about 50-50 here or here. But if we took a look at the rest of the tree and we see that um, most of the other sequences are from Odessa, uh, then it is more likely than the common ancestor of this clade is also in Odessa. So basically the most parsimonious scenario assumes the fewest number of changes in the location between the uh, tip of the tree and the internal node and assumes that this is the most plausible scenario of how the virus moved. So this is the very simple case of phylogeography analysis. And what um, we saw in our data was that the East was a sole largest exporter of viral migration events into other regions. So most of the um, virus uh, viral migration events were from the East where the virus originated let's say in the East and then moved into Kiev and into southern um, regions of um, the country. And we also saw that the two epoch model uh, suggesting that there was a change in 2014 that caused this pattern uh, was better supported than the one epoch model that we fit. Uh, so we, when we estimated this number of migration events from one region to the other, we then looked at the, we had data from the integrated biobehavioral survey in people who inject drugs. This is a bi-yearly um, survey uh, where people who inject drugs, they are asked many questions about their risky injection, risky sexual behaviors. And um, we also looked at the official data of the number of internally displaced people and the number of HIV infected internally displaced people who were uh, relocated and registered with the AIDS center at their new place of residence. And what we, when we did a very simple uh, correlation analysis, we saw that the higher number of exportation events, so uh, regions that exported uh, more virus, also was associated, so exported, produced more virus, were also associated with the large number of internal displaced people relocated to this region which at first seemed counterintuitive because we thought that um, it's going to be more associated with the higher number of importing events. But then we thought about the figure that most, a lot of uh, internally displaced people moved within the same region. And the regions that accumulated, uh, that uh, hosted the highest number of uh, the internal refugees were the same regions uh, that were the major exporters in our analysis, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, the east of the country. Uh, and also these regions had the highest HIV prevalence compared in general population and in other, um, in all of the subgroup uh, risk, subgroups like uh, risk groups, uh, populations. And then when we looked at the importation events, we saw that actually the higher number of HIV-positive internally displaced people moved to the regions 
that accumulated the uh, or uh, intook um, the highest number of these viral migration events. And um, this made sense in terms of the viral flow patterns that uh, we saw and in terms of the data that uh, we got from the aid centers. Uh, and we also saw a small correlation of the number of importation events and the uh, risky injection practices in the population of people who inject drugs in these regions. In particular, risky um, sexual behaviors such as not using condoms with casual or commercial partners. Um, so overall, um, we saw that the war and the human migrations that it caused uh, was changing the, the epidemic and the um, people moved within the country and they brought the virus with them. So it's not, we're not saying that the war started new outbreaks yet. We're not talking about that yet because we don't have that data yet. So this um, migration events, this is not transmission events or it's unlikely to be transmission events. What we think is happening is people getting infected long time ago somewhere in the east, they were infected and then when they moved they brought their virus with them, they registered with the new, with the aid center in the place of the residence and this is why we see um, the pattern that we see. Um, what is very important is first to reinforce the prevention services in these regions because um, as I said, these are the regions with very high prevalence of risky sexual behaviors. So there is a predisposition for potential outbreaks because new people are coming to the regions, new HIV infected people, a lot of them are com coming to the regions and uh, we need to make sure that first these people are linked to care so that their personal health is taken care of and they're not infectious and second the uh, community has a high level of protection in terms of um, providing condoms and providing other uh, HIV preventing services to not enable new outbreaks in these locations that attracted the most of internal displaced people and uh, the most of the virus. Um, this is going to be it. Um, this is my, I was, my PhD was funded through uh, Clarendon and through Hartford College and I have uh, some great collaborators in Ukraine which this would not be possible without them. Um, and of course my supervisors, um, Dr. Fari and Professor Pivas. And I welcome your questions.